I want you to take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the subject of the best church in the Bible. The best church in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, you find that great statement, very familiar statement from our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. That immediately leads us to a question, and the question is, how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus go about that? When it comes to building the church and to building a missions efforts, which we'll talk about tonight a little bit, we want to work with Christ. We want to work with Christ, not against our Lord Jesus Christ. Just to illustrate that, a few years ago, one of the men in my church and I were trying to put a new security sensor in our house. And to complete the wiring, we had to run the new cable down an existing electrical conduit, down a little, you know, plastic pipe. And so he first tried to run a cord from down from above, the electrical cable from above, and it got stuck. It wouldn't go through. So then I got a wire and tried to push it up from below, and it got stuck and wouldn't go through. And at one point, because I didn't realize what my friend was doing up in the attic, I was pushing the wire up from below at the same time that he was pushing the cable down from above, and you can imagine how much progress we made doing that. Well, in the same way, I would suggest to you, if our Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven building His church, and He is doing that from up above, then we want to make sure that our efforts down here below don't conflict with, don't run head-on into Jesus' work. We want to complement, be used by Him as co-workers, as Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians. Well, what I want to do with you this morning is show us in action Jesus' plan for building His church so that we, myself at Grace Fellowship Pretoria and you here at Mission Road Bible Church, will know exactly how to work along with and under our Lord Jesus Christ in building His church. And the way I want to do that is by showing you what I believe is the best church in the Bible. I would suggest to you that the way that Jesus built that church is the way that He would indeed want to build any church, including this church here. And of course, that leads us to a question, and the question is, well, what's the best church in the Bible? Now, we could have some fun arguments about this. You could choose a variety of churches from the New Testament. For example, you might think of the church of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, and so on. That would have to be the best church in the Bible, you would think. How about the church of Thessalonica, from which the Word of God sounded out, echoed out all through the Greek world? Or maybe the church of Ephesus that was so significant in planting churches all through that Roman province of Asia Minor. Philippi, which was clearly a favorite church of the Apostle Paul's. One church we would not put on that list would be the church of Corinth. They were a mess. They were a disaster. They are not the best church in the Bible. But I would suggest if I were given a vote for what is the best church in the Bible, my, would church, my vote would go to the church that we find here in the end of Acts chapter 11, the church of Antioch. It's the church of Antioch. I believe that it provides a brilliant model of how Jesus Christ wants to build His church, any local church. I believe that the church of Antioch was the best church in the Bible for four reasons. Let me give them to you up front. Four reasons. Number one, their evangelism. They were the best church in the Bible because of their evangelism. Number two, because of their training, their teaching. Number three, because of their serving. And number four, because of their missions. Their evangelism, their training, their serving, and their missions make the Antioch church, I believe, the best church in the Bible. 
It begins with their evangelism, and we can pick up the text in chapter 11 of Acts, verse 19. This takes us back to the stoning of Stephen, and Luke has done some other things in between, and now he reconnects to that historical moment to show you another thread of God's work flowing out of that event. Acts 11, verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, been of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord." To give you a bit of the background, as you remember, some days, uh, for the days after Pentecost, there was only one church in all the world. I mean, just think about that for a moment. In the days following Pentecost, there was only one church on the whole globe, and that was the church of Jerusalem. And the things that were happening there in that church, the apostles were there, and the teaching, and the miracles that they were doing, the things happening there were so exciting, so profound, so significant that nobody wanted to go anywhere else, right? You got saved there in Jerusalem, and you stayed there at that church. In fact, as you remember, Jesus had to kind of kickstart those Christians on their task of world evangelism. And He did that by expelling them from Jerusalem through the death of Stephen and the persecution that arose. Well, one of the places that those Jewish converts went was to a city called Antioch. Now, many people have never heard the city of Antioch, but in fact, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Following Rome itself and Alexandria and Egypt, Antioch was the third largest. It was located on the river Orontes, which might not help you much. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. If you go straight up the coast from the coast of Israel to the corner, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, where modern-day Turkey and Syria come together, right there, that's where the city of Antioch was. Antioch was the home to a large Jewish population, and so it's a logical haven for those who had been expelled from Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8. They had family there. They had friends there. They could go. They could work in their businesses. They could stay with family as they kind of got their lives back together and got back on their feet. Now, Luke tells us here that those expelled believers who arrived in Antioch were faithful to proclaim the new good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth was the God-man, Messiah of God, the Savior of the world. Now, according to verse 19, in the initial wave that went there, some proclaimed only to their fellow Jews. They proclaimed Christ only to their fellow Jews. However, eventually others arrived, those who had not grown up in Judea and weren't scared of Gentiles, and they were much more willing to preach the gospel of Christ to the Gentile population. Verse 20, Luke says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. These men understood the spirit of the Old Testament Messiah passages, the prophecies like Isaiah 49. Messiah would be a light to the nations, not merely to, the, to national Israel. They took to heart Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his Gentile household in Acts chapter 10. And so there in Antioch, in this bustling hive of Gentile activity, this group of converted Jews started to preach Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. 
Now, what I want you to do is notice two things about their evangelism as we see it recorded here. Two things, two characteristics of the evangelism that God used to start and to build the Antioch church. The first characteristic is that it was a God-blessed evangelism. That, of course, is essential. It is foundational. You can never do anything without that. Verse 21. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them. And obviously, as a result, a large number, those who believed, turned to the Lord. When the hand of the Lord is with you, things are going to happen. I mean, evangelism can only work if God is working. Only He can save sinners. And here God was working in a unique and special way. And that divine blessing was, of course, the key to what was happening in Antioch. That would be true anywhere all the time. But I also want to show us a second characteristic of the evangelism that God used to start the Antioch church. I love this characteristic. I think it is absolutely fascinating. The evangelism that began this church was not apostle-organized. It was not apostle-led. There were no famous evangelists, church planners, or apostles like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or Philip the evangelist. None of those guys are there in Antioch. No one famous at all. This evangelism was not tied to some kind of big technique like, you know, football stadium, you know, evangelistic crusades or something like that. In fact, as far as I can tell, what happened in Antioch was a bunch of common, ordinary, everyday Christians like you and me who were just going about in their daily lives to and fro, preaching Christ with their friends and their family and their co-workers and their, their business and their neighbors. Right? They were just going about and talking about Jesus. I would suggest to you, my friends, that that is a wonderful way to start a church. In fact, it's the best way to start a church. It's the best way to build a church. You see, a church that is created by evangelistic events will disappear when those grand evangelistic events disappear. A church whose evangelism depends on the pastor will falter and fall apart and disappear when the pastor goes away. On the other hand, a church in which ordinary Christians... A church in which ordinary Christians who speak to the people that they know in their daily lives, preaching the Lord Jesus, as Luke said it, that's a church that will always be strong. That's a church whose evangelism will always be strong. That was the church of Antioch. There were no miracle-working apostles at this point. There were no famous evangelists. Christ built this church, not through programs and through the professionals, but through the faithfulness of ordinary believers. I suppose you could say Christ built this church from the pews up, not from the pulpit down. You see, the pastor is just one man. He can't do all the evangelism by himself. I mean, even if he's a hyperkinetic energizer bunny like Rick, right? He can't do all of it himself. That's impossible. You know people, you come in contact with people every day in your life whom the pastors and the elders at this church will never meet. God builds His church. Christ builds His church when ordinary people like you who love Christ talk about Jesus to the people they know. Think of it this way, by illustration. If you go to the park for a picnic, 
and you take, say, your dog along with you, which is easier to keep away from your food, your dog or the ants? I mean, even if you have a big dog, you can tie it to a tree, lock it in the car, or whatever, right? You can keep your dog away, but how do you keep a million little ants away from your cheeseburger? It's impossible. They're everywhere. Well, in the same way, when all the ants in the anthills scurry out into the world to speak about Jesus Christ to the people they know, there's no stopping them. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, I believe that his preferred way to do that is just like he did here in Antioch. A bunch of common, ordinary, everyday Christians who just won't shut up about Jesus. That's a great way to build a church. And in Antioch, the effects of that kind of grassroots evangelism, the effects were radical. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord is with him. That's essential. That's vital. That's absolutely foundational. A large number, those who believe, the Greek says, turns to the Lord's. You see, when normal Christians get it through their heads that they are the stormtroopers of the church of Jesus Christ, then things will start to happen in a church. God will empower their faithfulness with dramatic, radical effects for the gospel. Here, the effects were seen in two ways. They're seen in the number of people that came to Christ, and also, Luke records for us, the effects are seen in the change, in the radical transformation that conversion brought to those people's lives. So radical were the effects, in fact, that news of what was happening in Antioch, of the spread of the gospel in that city, reached Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's still kind of home base, right? That's where the apostles are. And so, they need to make sure that that new church in that major city, that it starts right, that the doctrine is right, that they stay on track. And so, to make sure that that church stayed the course, the apostles sent an experienced elder-type man from Jerusalem to Antioch. He was there to, sent there to evaluate and to prove the work that was going on. That man's name was Barnabas, well known to us in the book of Acts, verse 22. News about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord's. That's Luke's summary, the end of verse 24. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord's. There was a dramatic effect as God intervened and saved sinners, and as we'll see in a moment, there was a transforming effect in the lives of those who came to Christ. Under our evangelism heading then, we need to just say again, when common, everyday Christians, when the people in the pew refuse, when they absolutely refuse to turn over the work of evangelism to the professionals, then Christ builds His church. Now, that leads us immediately to a second reason, to a second reason that the Antioch church was the best church in the Bible, and that is their training, their, their teaching. Barnabas wasn't in the city of Antioch at that new church very long before he realized something. 
all of these new converts need to be taught. They need to be trained in right theology. They need to be trained in godly daily living. They need to be trained in continued evangelism. After all, Jesus' great commission was very specific. It was to make disciples, make people public, committed followers of Jesus Christ, make them learners of Jesus Christ. When they convert to Christ, you baptize them. And Jesus said, teaching them all that I have commanded. And so that's obviously the next step in Antioch, don't you think? Uh, we've, we've evangelized. Now we need to be teaching them all that Christ commanded. That's the next step. Faithful evangelism by ordinary Christians was being blessed by God, but who would teach these new converts to obey all that Jesus commanded? Well, Barnabas is there, and a face immediately leaps to mind. He immediately thinks of Saul, or the Apostle Paul as we know him. Verse 24, into the verse, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year, they met with the church, and they taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians or Christ followers in Antioch. A church that Jesus Christ builds is a church that teaches its people to obey all that Christ commanded. And so that's why Barnabas went in search of Paul. Paul's the logical choice. Much later in life, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles. And so he got this big church growing in this Gentile city of Antioch. Barnabas evaluates the situation and he goes, yeah, we need the best teacher of Gentiles available here. I think Barnabas understood at a very early point that this, the third largest city of the empire, here Christ was building a church that could serve as a springboard into the rest of the Gentile world. It wasn't going to be easy for the church in Jerusalem to do that. They contributed, but Antioch would be even better positioned for that. And so they needed the best teacher of Gentiles available. Paul's the man. He is the man to give the church of Antioch an unshakable foundation in doctrine, in daily Christian living, zeal for outreach. Who would be better than the Apostle Paul? Verse 26, and when Barnabas had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples are first called, can we pronounce it, Christians? That just puts the emphasis where it is, right? They were followers of Christ in Antioch, first called that there. Now, a year may not seem very long, that's just because we're lazy in the Western church. The early church's habit was to meet every day, and so they were getting this instruction every single day, not just once a week. And if his epistles are any indication, and of course they are, Paul spent this year in Antioch teaching the new believers industrial strength doctrine. You guys are studying Romans, you know that. New believers need strong doctrine. If Paul's epistles are any indication, Paul also taught them how to behave in the workplace, how to live in their families how to speak and control their tongues, how to control their temper, how to be tolerant, kind, and forgiving. Everything that's part of representing Christ as one of His slaves. 
In short, Paul continued the church-building work in Antioch by teaching the converts there everything that Jesus had commanded. And whatever Paul taught them, it worked, didn't it? Whatever he taught, it worked because these new believers were soon called Christians or Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Their Gentile neighbors looked at them. Their pagan neighbors gazed in wonder at the transformed lives of these new converts, and they said, these must be Christ followers because whatever that Christ fellow says, they do. And so why is Antioch the best church in the Bible, as I would describe it? Well, first, because of their evangelism. Common Christians refusing to turn the task of evangelism over to the professionals. And the second reason this church is so good is because of their training. Because of their training. Their teaching. Teaching everything that Christ commanded. Deep theology dramatically changed living. However, Paul didn't come to Antioch to teach these new believers. He didn't come there to teach that church just to be a bunch of theological brainiacs. Paul wasn't interested in making the church of Antioch a bunch of clean-nosed, starch-collared moralists, puffed up with a holier-than-thou attitude, we know more than you kind of thing. A fed, fat, self-satisfied church is not a Christ-built church. It just isn't. What is a Christ-built church is a serving church. And that's the third reason that I would call this church the best church in the Bible. They're serving. You see, a church of relatively new converts who are being thoroughly trained, thoroughly taught, that is a church that is in danger of becoming a self-focused church. A church that's just busy drawing lines, and lines are important theologically. We need them to protect the truth. But you know what it's like. You can just get preoccupied with that kind of thing. The attitude of, well, we're saved, we've heard the gospel, and we're being trained and taught, and we're so enjoying what we're learning about the Word of God and Christ, we're so enjoying that that we're not especially concerned about anyone else. That's not a Christ-built church. You say, well, why is that? Because a Christ-built church is a serving church. In Antioch, the serving is found in verse 27 and following. It begins with a shortage, with a need. There is a need in the Jerusalem church, the believers there. It's a shortage of food, verse 27. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place because New Testament prophets were always 100% accurate. Luke confirms for you that Agabus was genuine. This took place in the reign of Emperor Claudius. And so, as a genuine New Testament prophet in that era, Agabus is receiving direct revelation from God. In this case, it was a revelation about a shortage, a great shortage that would strike the church of Judea and Jerusalem, a famine, a shortage of food. And if you needed confirmation, Josephus, the historian, a Jewish historian of this time period, confirmed that indeed Judea did go through a severe famine during the late 40s AD. Now, the question is, how would the Antioch church respond? The Jerusalem church really had been their mother church. 
It is people from that church who had come to Antioch and planted and started the Antioch church. They owe that church a debt, and there are believers there who have a genuine and deep need. How will the Antioch church respond to the needs of, if we can call it, their mother church? Will they look at that and say, oh, that's fine, be warm, be filled, or will they minister to those believers in Jerusalem to whom they owed a spiritual debt? Were they so wrapped up in Antioch in their training and their truth learning that they would give no heed to the need of their brothers and sisters in Christ? Not at all. Because Paul had not taught these people just theology. He had taught them a theology of serving. And if you want to know what that looks like, turn for a moment to the New Testament epistle of Titus. Many years later, Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete. There were new churches there that needed to be taught and elders needed to be appointed. Titus goes there to do that, and it's interesting. Paul tells Titus, I want you to teach a number of things. He teaches them profound, deep doctrine, that great section in chapter 3 about salvation. Teaches them practical, godly, daily living, how to work in their workplace. Bond slaves to be subject to their own masters, not stealing, not argumentative, and so on. Here's something else that Paul told Titus to teach, and I'm sure Paul had done this in Antioch as well. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Titus 3.8 says, this is a trustworthy statement, reflecting back on that profound theology, soteriology in verses 4 and following. And then Paul says, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, Titus, so that those who have believed God will be careful, and you might think in what he's just said, will be careful to hold to right doctrine. Well, he could have said that and it would have been perfectly appropriate because that's very true and needs to be done. But Paul now moves on. He says, yeah, they need to hold to right doctrine, but he says that they will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. There are believers who are going to have needs, and what we do is we reach out and meet those needs. Verse 13, some traveling preachers had needs. Diligently helped Zenos the lawyer. I guess lawyers can be Christians. Diligently helped Zenos the lawyer and Apollo. That was a joke, by the way, just so you know. Uh, Diligently helped Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. There's some believers coming through town. They're going to be preaching. These men will need your help. Make sure those new churches understand that they have a theology of serving, that we minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. There's a lot of things Titus needed church to teach the new churches on the island of Crete. One of those was to be servers. That is a critical part of a Christ-built church. You see, the church that Jesus Christ builds is a church full not of sitters, but of servers. You see, if your role here in this church is to keep a chair from flying up and hitting the ceiling on Sunday morning then you need to understand this point. A church that Jesus Christ is building is a church that will be full of servers, not just sitters. Christ loves a church where everyone, as it were, is doing the cement mixing and brick laying work of building the church. Of course, we mean the people, not the building. Now, if you turn back to Acts 11... When Agabus announced that there was this pressing need for the believers, the brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem, well, guess what they did? They leapt into action. They were as well taught in this area as every other. Acts 11, verse 29, and in proportion that any of the disciples had means, 
Each of them, each of the believers in Antioch, determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. This church was a well-trained church. And they were as well-trained in their theology of serving as they were in everything else. Doctrine is of primary importance. We will never step back from that. But to have a Christ-built church, the card of doctrine needs to be pulled around by the horse of serving. In Antioch, the horse of serving was a Clydesdale, one of those horses that looks like a small moving mountain. It wasn't just the wealthy few, you know, the 20% who furnish 80% of the church budget. It wasn't just those people who climbed on board. Luke said in verse 29, each one. Each one, every single person in the Antioch church, every single one of them determined to give a donation to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. In Antioch, in that church, the attitude of serving was, was like a flu virus in a daycare. Everybody's got it. Each one in proportion to his income gave to the serving of the need. Verse 30 gives us the completion of their serving. And this they did. They took up the offering and they sent it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. That's the elders of the Jerusalem church. We love and owe a debt to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. We are glad to help. And so the Antioch church is a Christ-built church because of their evangelism, because of their training and teaching, and because of their serving. When ordinary Christians refuse to pass off the task of evangelism to the professionals, when the leaders train the congregation in all that Christ has commanded, and when everyone in the church pitches in to do the cement mixing, brick hauling work of building the church, that's a Christ-built church. But that's not enough. That's good, but if you stop there, you're not a Christ-built church yet. Because there is a fourth facet to this picture. The fourth reason that this church is the best church in the Bible is their missions. Their missions. You see, a Christ-built church is a church that wants to build not only itself, it does that certainly, but it also wants to build up other churches as well. And again, we're not talking about the buildings here. A church is not the rectangle of bricks that you meet in. It's the people, right? You understand that. A church, a mature Christ-built church, is a church that wants to build other churches, other bodies of believers. A church that is being moved and worked in by its Lord will be like its Lord, always thinking of reaching out to others. And the primary way that she does this is through her missions. Now, let's look at the church of Antioch and see how a Christ-built church approaches missions. And really, the rest of the book of Acts, to be quite honest, from chapter 13 on, is the missions program of the Antioch church. You maybe have never thought of it that way, but that's all Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas were. They were missionaries sent out by two churches, really, the Antioch church, and they also reported regularly to the church in Jerusalem. Turn over to chapter 13. <clears throat> chapter 12, Luke kind of sums up, wraps up his comments on the Jerusalem church, and now turns his attention to the Antioch church and their missions program. The Antioch church was a trained, serving, 
enthusiastic evangelistic church. It had established leaders. It had solid doctrinal commitments. Its pews were full of servers, not sitters. In short, it was a church ready to plant another church. After evangelism and training and serving, the final stage of Christ's church building plan is always reduplication. Reduplication. You send someone, you send someone from your church if you have them, you send someone somewhere else. It might be across the neighborhood, it might be across the world. You send someone somewhere else to do what you are doing in your church. And I don't mean the peripheral stuff, you know, that the building has to look the same, the PowerPoint or the band, you know, that might not transfer to Africa or Papua New Guinea. But you take the important stuff. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, what church is really about. You take that and you transfer it somewhere else. Why do you do that? Because you can't keep something that good to yourself. Mission Road Bible Church is a great church, and it's so good that you've got to share it. You've got to share it with other people in other places around the neighborhood and around the world. Let me show you how that happened in Antioch. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. This apparently is their elder board. You got Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And so, in the church of Antioch, you have a solid internal structure. This is a strong church. It's an established church. It has mature leaders, mature teachers, mature elders. Five men mentioned here, Paul and Barnabas and the three others. Well, in that situation, you can be quite confident that much was being done. Plenty of attention was being given to the building up of the church of Antioch. That's important. That's step one. That's got to happen. At some point, however, a Christ-built church, every Christ-built church will understand that it needs to divert some of its resources from building itself to building up other churches. The Holy Spirit moves them to do that, beginning in verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which, for the work to which I have called them. Again, as genuine New Testament prophets, these men are receiving infallible and errant revelation from God. In this case, the revelation is instruction from the Holy Spirit about the next step in their church-building plan, reduplication. That plan involves setting apart Paul and Barnabas for a special task. Luke doesn't actually say at this point what that special task is here in the beginning of chapter 13, but as you read through the chapters that follow, it's very obvious what that task is. The work that the Spirit intends them to do is a church planting, church strengthening ministry. I'll show you that from chapter 14 in a moment. The Spirit's instruction has been given, the commissioning service and sending out takes place in verses 3 and 4. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which was the port city of the city of Antioch, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, an island that's just a short distance off the coast, a large island as you know. Since the Antioch church was a well-established church, 
the Lord decided to spread some of the wealth around. Paul and Barnabas, we often don't see it this way, but it's a mistake. Paul and Barnabas were nothing more and nothing less than missionaries sent out by the Antioch church. And every year and a half to two years, if you track it through the book of Acts, every year and a half through two years, they came back and reported to their sending church, Antioch, and also Jerusalem. These guys are not lone rangers rushing out doing their own thing. They were missionaries sent out by and accountable to two local churches, Jerusalem and Antioch. And so the Spirit of God looks at it and it says, keeping all of those high-caliber leaders in Antioch is a bit of overkill. Wonderful for the church of Antioch, but a bit of overkill when there are millions of people living just a boat day's journey or a week away, dying without Jesus Christ. And therefore, what the Antioch church did at the impulse of the Spirit, they selected the two best men for the job. This is a very important principle for missions. They selected the two best men for the job, Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them out to reproduce what they had already been doing in the church of Antioch. What was happening there was so good, it needed to go to Cyprus, it needed to go to Asia Minor, it needed to go to Greece and, and, and Athens and Corinth and Philippi and all those places. They sent the best men available, well-trained, capable, competent men. Paul and Barnabas were not simply eager. They were proven and competent, gifted. They didn't become missionaries because they had a pulse above 20 and a plane ticket. Paul and Barnabas are proven men. They can do it because they've done it in the church of Antioch, and we're going to send them to do the same thing somewhere else. It's very important for missions. Now, step back for a moment and think if you were a member of the Church of Antioch. We read through this and we say, oh, isn't that great? It's wonderful. Think about those guys. Can you imagine what a sacrifice it was for the Church of Antioch to put Paul and Barnabas on a boat and wave goodbye and watch them sail away over the horizon to go start churches somewhere else? I mean, if you had the Apostle Paul teaching Romans in your pulpit every Sunday, I mean, Rick's good, but, you know, uh, he's not the Apostle Paul. If you had the Apostle Paul preaching Romans in your pulpit every Sunday, would you want to send him out? And what about Barnabas? You remember that's just a nickname. Remember what it meant? Son of encouragement. If the man whose name is Son of Encouragement is doing your counseling in your church... You want to send him out? This is a great sacrifice by the church of Antioch. Make no mistake, never minimize that. Their two best teachers, their two best counselors, their two best shepherds, their two best elders, their two best everything are being sent out to do church somewhere else. Why? What we got is too good to keep. We got to share it. They would now be benefiting others not the Antioch church directly. That is a sacrifice. That's a church, my friends, that understands. That's a church that gets it. That's a church that understands Jesus Christ's church building program. Once we have things going here and reasonably stable, once we're mature, Let's send some of our best people out. It might be across the neighborhood. It might be to another continent. 
let's send them out to do the same thing somewhere else. The important stuff, not the peripheral, trivial stuff. We cannot keep the gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves and just be feeding on that and feeding our own souls. We cannot keep the preaching of the word of God that we get here and has transformed us. We can't keep that for ourselves. We have to. We have to be involved in giving that to others. It's too good to keep. It's got to be shared. And by the way, so you know, that's exactly how my church, uh, Grace Fellowship in Pretoria, South Africa, that's exactly how my church started. Grace Community Church, strong, mature church in Los Angeles, sent an experienced man to South Africa and a little Bible study started that was the foundation of our church. He was instrumental in starting the church. At the same time, Grace Church spent five years training me in the church and in the seminary. And because they couldn't find anybody better at that point, they sent me, big mistake, but God somehow worked around it. Eventually, at Grace Fellowship's request, the Grace Church did send me out to teach, to train, and shepherd that body of believers. I tell my church this, guys, do you understand that our church started that everything you benefit from here started because a church on the other side of the planet with full of people whom you will never meet until you go to heaven cared enough about a little Bible study in South Africa to, well, start that Bible study first of all and then send a guy to be their shepherd and to preach them. If any church should ever get it, it should be our church. We should understand my church, and I know you do here as well. The church is never about getting fat and fed and self-focused. It's just not about that. We need to exhaust ourselves in the service of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to do that because there are others out there who need the opportunity to go to a gospel-preaching church, a word-of-God-preaching church just like this one. You want a life mission? That's it. You don't have to be the preacher. Not everybody's gifted that way. You don't have to be the guy that gets in the boat or the plane or whatever. Not everybody's gifted that way. Right? You know, some go and some are sending. Right? That's, that's fine. But that's a life mission for you and for this church. It's not about getting two cars and a big house and skiing holidays in Austria or an office big enough to practice your five iron shots in. That's just not what it's about. What it's about is this, working hard in this church. And I don't care what you do. I mean, from Rick as the preacher down to everybody, it doesn't matter if all you do is pick up bulletins off the chairs on Sunday afternoon. If you clean the toilets, if you teach first grade Sunday school, it doesn't matter what you do. All of it is important. All of it is part of the body of Christ. All of it comes together to be this absolutely transforming place called Mission Road Bible Church. And as you guys work hard at that here and then move to that fourth stage, you realize what we've got here by the grace of Christ is just too good to keep. See, we can never be happy just running our little church. We can never be happy just to have our church running smoothly. I mean, that's important. We need to work at that. 
But we can't just be happy, self-content, self-preoccupied. That is not a Christ-built church. Christ-built church is, well, a church like this one, one that strives for maturity so that it can be used by God to plant and strengthen other churches. Christianity is always about loving others. It's always about loving your Savior and loving others. It always is. Now, let's see how the church of Antioch went about that. Let me just quickly give you some points from chapter 14 here, an illustration of what this looks like in practice. The Antioch mission, Church's missions program had two stages to it as exemplified by Paul and Barnabas and all the rest of the book of Acts. The first stage focused on evangelism, <clears throat> gospel preaching. They went to an area where there was no Bible teaching, which was anywhere in that day, where there was no Bible teaching church and they started a church. They evangelized sinners to start a church. And the second stage was they went back over time and strengthened those new churches, developed and trained their leaders. Let me show you that plan in action. As in Antioch, it started with evangelism for the purpose of starting the church. Chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium, that's a city in south-central modern-day Turkey, it was a Greek area then, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews, both of Jews and of Greeks. And so what do they do? They go and they proclaim the Word of God, and they teach them the Old Testament Scriptures. They teach them about Jesus Christ. The gospel is the light that, by God's grace, draws moths. It's the message that converts the lost. And when they got chased out of one city because of persecution, Paul and Barnabas just went to the next city and did the same thing. Verse 6. Verse 5 tells us that there was some persecution building. Verse 6, they became aware of it and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding region. What did they do there? They continued to preach the gospel. But evangelism is never for the purpose of just getting a bunch of individual believers scattered here and there all about. A lot of people kind of approach it that way. That's not the biblical way. Evangelism is always for the purpose of getting persons saved to get them in a good, teach, good Bible teaching church. Not to produce a scattering of believers. It's to get people saved and get them in a good church. Verse 21. Here's what Paul and Barnabas did after they had been to those other cities, preached the gospel there. They went back to those cities where they had preached. It says, after they had preached the gospel in that city, they had many and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. What did they do? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You say, why did these missionaries, why did Paul and Barnabas return to where they had already been? I mean, for some missionaries, that's like the unforgivable sin. Not for Paul and Barnabas. Why did they go back? Well, they knew that just as in their home church in Antioch, these new converts needed a good, solid, enduring church. And so after that evangelism stage, they went back in their missions program, and they went back to the establishing, strengthening kind of stage. They went back to those existing churches. 
those groups of believers who had come to faith. And what did they do? They especially, Luke says, focused on leadership training, identified and appointed qualified elders in those churches. Because if you have good, godly, committed men leading, you're going to have a good, godly, committed church. It's just that simple. That, my friends, is just biblical missions. That's what it is. You evangelize so that by the grace of God, people get saved. But you can't leave them at that point. They need to be also directed into a Bible-teaching church. And if there isn't one, you got to start one. The task is not done until that has been done. Too many missions efforts today bail out after the initial evangelism stage. It's not biblical missions. Others do some teaching, but they never really establish a church. Others establish a church, but don't take the time to adequately train the leaders. And so it's a weak, wobbly, faltering, kind of falls down over time church. I think the church of Antioch is the very best church in the Bible, and we can argue about that later if you want. But I believe it's the best church in the Bible because of, in part, their philosophy of missions. It included everything right from the beginning, evangelism right through to the end, a solid biblical church that's ready to plant other churches. Paul and Barnabas went out to plant churches to reduplicate the Antioch church as far as was possible in each situation. In some places, that's going to mean Bible translation. They didn't have to do that. Everyone in their half of the Greek, of the Roman Empire spoke Greek. So they could read the Septuagint, the Old Testament. They could read any New Testament epistles that were being written. And for us today, we'd look at some places. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to do Bible translation first so that you can evangelize, start a church, and train the leaders so they have a great, solid church that can do the same thing again. And so, when you study Acts 11 through 14, I think you see that there is a plan. There is a Christ-ordained New Testament plan, a guiding strategy that is exemplified here by the Antioch church. That's why Luke put this in the book of Acts. Christ said, I will build my church. Here's how he does it. In my estimation, the church of Antioch is the best church in the Bible, and we've consciously set ourselves as a church in Grace Fellowship, Pretoria, consciously set ourselves on a path to imitate this church. It's simple, it's clear, we can, by God's grace, do this. Now, I would encourage you as Mission Road Bible Church to do a similar thing. If you're going to build Christ's church, here's how you're going to do it. First, evangelism. But it's going to be evangelism in which ordinary Christians refuse to turn the task of evangelizing over to the professionals. We'll do that. You do something else. Stay out of our way. We're preaching Christ, right? When you, the pew, do that, that's a Christ-built church. Second, training. Teaching people all that Jesus has commanded so that changed hearts lead to changed lives, lead to changed family, lead to changed everything. Third, serving. Jesus Christ builds His church when you have a congregation full of servers, not sitters. And then finally, missions. You send out proven, trained, competent men to focus on church planning, church strengthening, leadership training, the things the Church of Antioch did. When you focus on those things as this church is doing because it's a good church, 
When you focus on those things, then you are building the church the way Jesus Christ would build the church.